me tell you what this political movement is about. Jobs and growth for all Australians. It's on jobs and growth. Have great jobs. Economic growth. Strong growth. More jobs. When they go low, we go high. So I'm seeing in my mind something very similar with this bill to a colonoscopy. Let me just stop you so you don't waste a line of questioning. I'm just giving you... I love the mansplaining. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Please clap. Please clap. This is Represent. 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 On Sid Nation. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Represent on Sin Nation, the hour of politics. I'm Maria. I'm Tash. And on today's show, we'll be looking at the recent calls from MPs for the government to appoint a minister for young people. We'll be speaking to the very exciting, very fabulous um, (laughs) Nick Xenophon team, Senator Rebecca Sharkey. So make sure you tune in for that live interview. We'll also be discussing Brexit, which has been formally triggered earlier this week, and to wade through the complicated and technical details of Brexit, we'll be speaking to visiting lecturer and PhD fellow at the University of London, Zahara Jazza. And, of course, you know... Pop chat! (laughs) Um, Where we end the uh, rather dense political episode with a light-hearted headline or story from the week that tends to remind us that politics can sometimes be actually fun and pretty wonderful and most of the time cringeworthy, yeah. I guess. <laughs> um, you can get involved too. Just send us a tweet to at represent or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash represent, and let us know what you think about the calls to appoint a minister for young people because it's not only, uh, an imp- it's not only important that young people are politically engaged, but we have... Um, that we have representatives in our government that can um, make sure that we're getting all the opportunities and benefits that we deserve. Um, so this issue... <laughs> nice segue, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's not a left or right ideology. It's a bipartisan issue, especially in Parliament. Um, so it affects all youths across the board. Mm. So let us know what you think on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent or by tweeting to us at sinrepresent. So on the topic of uh, Minister for Young People, what's happening is there have been calls for the federal government to revive the cabinet position of Minister for Youth or Young People, whatever you want to call it, Mm. is up for debate. Um, So this has been previously sidelined. It was first introduced by Malcolm Fraser in 78 and was a key part of any government until Tony Abbott got rid of it in 2013. so since then, we the Labor Party has had a Minister for Youth, kind of, in 2015 yeah. to 16, um, but they sidelined that portfolio. Yeah. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, Malcolm Turnbull has, you know, the government has cut funding for headspace and drug services and um, university fees have been under peril. You know, there's a lot of things... Um, and youth unemployment. Mm. If you want to- so um, youth unemployment um, has been at its highest rate for um, since 14, 40 years. So it's been the highest peak since um, 40 years ago. And according to a survey that Hack did on Triple J, um, 80% of young people 
that they surveyed last year said politicians weren't working in the best interest of young people. So that kind of illustrates to me and I think to a lot of people that mm. there is like a need yeah um definitely in like the common like political sphere especially since there's so many um policies as you said before that represent you know different sides of like political like youth um issues and such mm. and yeah. So this week, a number of ministers, like the Nick Xenophon um, team, Senator Rebecca Sharkey, Independent MP Kathy McGowan, and MP Sky Kakoshki Moore, and they um, submitted or will submit a motion to the House of Reps calling for the government to appoint a minister for young people. So um, Rebecca Sharkey actually posed a question to Malcolm Turnbull, and Malcolm Turnbull um, had a response that was... Uh, it wasn't really uh, inspiring, I guess. He said that it was a mistake to imagine that not only that young people only care about young people, um, so not to have um, worrying about like age and having to have a young minister. Age is just a number. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, well, so yeah. we're just going to go to a song, but we are going to be back. We're uh, speaking with MP Rebecca Sharkey, um, who was one of the people who called for uh, the Minister of Youth or Young People to be uh, a part of the government. So we're going to go to Licky Lee with Dance, Dance, Dance. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, but do stay tuned. Rebecca Sharkey is coming up. That was Dance, Dance, Dance by Licky Lee. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, the hour of politics. We have NXT Senator Rebecca Sharkey on the phone to speak with us about the calls for the government to elect or even acknowledge the idea of a minister for young people. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, how are you? Can I just correct you? I'm not a senator. I'm actually a member of the lower house. Oh, (laughs) thanks. Um, well, thank you for joining us uh, today. Um, I just wanted to start with why um, ask you asking you why we don't have a minister for young people. Well, it's a really good question. Why we don't have a minister for youth or a minister for young people? We always did. We did from 1978 through to uh, when the Abbott government was elected in 2013. Um, the ministry is always at the discretion of the prime minister, and uh, and I always I believe that. Um, Whatever the makeup of the ministry is, it's always a good reflection of the values of that prime minister and government. Okay. So, um, how do you think that young people have been disenfranchised, given the current government has, you know, they do implement schemes like the PARS program, which help young people. Um, but, you know, do we need a concentrated focus for young people to have um, the attention of their government? Well, I think what we've been looking at since 2013, and look, I'll acknowledge the PATH program. I think the PATH program is going to be an excellent program. However, I I do have a lot of concerns about it, and I'll be keeping a very close eye on it because I don't want it um, to replace people who are already in jobs, people in casual jobs, and we've we've got to make sure that it's, it's new work and we have to make sure that young people who are incredibly vulnerable in the workforce are not exploited. But parking that to one side, when we 
when we go back, you know, look at the last four years, so from 2013 to now, there's been uh, many cases where legislation's been put to the parliament that would have been um, incredibly detrimental to young people. Fortunately, um, uh, those measures have been have been able to be stopped um, uh, in the Senate. Uh, and so the, the things I'm talking about is initially back in 2014, there was a plan for six months on, six months off youth allowance. Um, many, many of you would have heard about, you know, plans to deregulate universities that would have been um, uh, the potential for very, very expensive degrees. Um, Labor always calls them, you know, up to a hundred thousand dollar degree, degrees. But we're really talking about a far more expensive tertiary um, system based on the person who's studying. Um, AAC, the um, the advocacy net network, the national network that was there to um, to advocate with government and with community um, about young people's issues that was defunded, uh, and then. Right now, we're right in the middle of youth week and uh, this is the last time, um, well, it looks like, unless the government changes it in this budget, that youth week will be funded because there's nothing in the forward estimate. Mm. Which is disappointing for Incredibly us. Incredibly disappointing because youth week is a really good opportunity for young people, even young people who um, don't get involved in um, many things outside of their home, um, to get involved in activities, uh, to learn more about different issues and to have a voice. It's fair to give young people um, a voice um, out, out to the community. Um, and I just want to ask in about Malka, uh, Prime Minister Turnbull's response to... Um, having a minister for young people, he said that it would be a mistake to imagine that only young people care about young people. So I wanted to ask how old you think the minister should be and what credentials or background that mm -hmm. they would need. So I actually don't think it, it has anything to do with the age of the person who's the minister. Just like you don't need to have um, a very old member of parliament to be, say, a minister for ageing. Um, what I do think is that it needs to be somebody, uh, and Kath McGowan, who is the member for Indi, which is one of mm. um, the seats in Victoria, says that they should be a digital native, and I think that that's excellent. Um, but, but more than anything else, I think that they need to be a person who is willing to listen and engage to under 25, talk about uh, and know the issues, know about youth homelessness and how it's um, the biggest group of um, people who are homeless know about issues like youth suicide, um, self-harm, um, the fact that youth unemployment is 13.5% and yet in parts of um, Australia it's up to 28%. Know, know about issues such as youth underemployment, which means that one in five young people are not getting the hours that they say they'd like to get in work. So it's about somebody who's willing to engage closely with under 25s from a wide spectrum of, of regions um, about a whole range of issues and then take those issues to the parliament and importantly into the cabinet so when decisions are made uh, and when money is allocated to different um, parts of our community young people get a fair share. So um, I just wanted to know what your response was to the Prime Minister's statements about um, him leading a thoroughly youthful ministry. Does the, do you... uh, I think he kind of missed the point, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, firstly, I don't think his ministry is that useful because the majority of the last two weeks 
it has been um, a front cabinet of just men sitting there um, on the front bench. Uh, and uh, I've got to tell you, I think the average age is around 50. So, mm. But, I mean, look, it's not the point what the age is um, of, of the front bench, even though I think that that was a, a really bizarre comment. It's really just about having somebody who's interested um, and not just leaning on the fact that they're a grandpa um, to say that they know how to represent young people because I don't think anyone is. Um, and so also, how would you think that a Minister for Young People would actually work in a youth's favour? And I say this as sort of if any representative government doesn't reflect the needs of all people and, you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, help everybody. But in this case of young people especially, how would this minister be able to make the necessary changes? It... Well, I my thinking is if you have a minister who is out in the community, who specifically is engaging with, with young people from the city, young people from regional areas, um, uh, young people who are uh, LGBTIQ um, uh, connected, if, if you have got a minister who's connecting with all of those young, all, all of those young people, you will have someone who's acutely aware because they've talked to young people about the issues that are on the minds of young people. If you're not connecting and you don't have a minister who who has that, you know, on their radar, then I think you can easily miss the point. And and we, if we look elsewhere in the world, and we'll see other examples where in other governments they go so important to know what the next generation is thinking because they're going to be the ones that are going to be supporting all of us when we're old. Um, and, and so I look at, say, Justin Trudeau. He's the Prime Minister of Canada and yet he also wanted to make sure he was the Minister for Youth because he knows that the next generation is critical to ensuring the prosperity of the nation. Well, that's a perfect place to stop. Yeah. <laughs> what a nice end point. Um, thank you so much for joining us today on Represent and, of course, for pushing for this voice for um, young people in our government. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks. We're now going to uh, hear from you, the youth of Australia, where you told us what you thought about a minister for young people. So there is a push to create a youth minister in Australian government. Do you think that this is a good idea? Um, I think that it's more than a good idea. I think that it's um, probably quite necessary for the future. But I think in particular it needs to be something that's kept. Like, I don't think that we want a token youth minister. We want something that um, going forward into the future, a position that will continue to be there and continue to be updated and such. Um, I think it would be good to give the young people a bit more of a voice just because it seems to be a lot of the politicians currently are like in their middle age and follow one demographic but at the same time they don't necessarily have as much experience but that could be a good thing because they're more likely to bring new things to the table. Uh, yes, I do think that having a youth minister would be good to you know represent the youth but it would need to be more than one I would say because obviously there's a lot of diverse youth you know, diverse, like, in terms of sexuality, race and all that. You can't really have one person speaking to the whole of the youth. So, I don't know, maybe a board or, yeah, a group of people would be best. Um, how old do you think a youth minister should be? Um, that's an excellent question. Uh, in my opinion, I would say there would be no real age limit, per se, as long as the person has experience in dealing with young people. So, for example, um, 
a dean from a university campus could be 60 years old, but I would still trust them more with, you know, the affairs of youth than... Like, as long as they have experience in dealing with this area, I don't think the age particularly matters. Of course, like, the younger side is preferable, but I'm not strict about that. Um, I believe, like, early 20s, late 20s sort of thing, still young enough to connect with um, their peers fairly easily. I would say um, the ages of 18 to uh, 26. 18 to 25 or 26. What issues um, do young people face that you think might be overlooked or underlooked um, or not looked into enough that something like a youth minister should focus on? Um, Well, the one main thing that I struggle a lot with is employment. So I realise we have a minister for employment and sort of thing, but I feel like um, a lot of... That I, I feel like there isn't enough of a startup for uh, younger unemployed people. I think there needs to be a bit more of a sort of boost in that area. Um, so something along those lines, I think, would be quite important. Um, well, I'm a big advocate for LGBT plus inclusion and education in mainstream, um, which is very difficult because a lot of the vocal majority are conservative old people, um, or at least that's what it seems like. Um, and education funding, a lot of my friends are having trouble finding TAFE courses at the moment, and that's really disappointing because of all the cuts to education. And... Um, like affordable housing because so many young people are struggling to actually you know get into a home or even have a roof over their heads it's it's pretty bullshit um i think what might be being overlooked is just basically the opportunities that young people have i guess that would be in the workforce and that and also just uh i mean i can't really think of anything else at the moment but yeah more access to you know opportunities and all that would be would be good that was some of those Vox Pops from you guys. But we want more. Like, you know. We want to know more. We, yeah, we want to know more about you. No, we're not creepy. Um, but do you know what we can also do? We can ask your opinion on Facebook and on Twitter, which is what we're going to do. So what is your opinion about a minister for young people? We want to know. Maybe let us know by tweeting to us at SinRepresent or letting us know on our Facebook page, you know, getting on those poll emojis, happy, sad, heart. I don't know. I, I put a few in there. don't know which ones they mean, which. Anyway, um, at facebook.com forward slash represent. Sin represent. Sin represent. So it's a really <laughs> important topic that we hope won't go away too soon and we really look forward to seeing how the government responds and if they will um, respond in our favour. So watch this space. We're now going to go to a song. This is Seafret with Oceans. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, the hour of politics. That was Oceans by Seafret. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. So Britain began the process of leaving the EU earlier this week. Uh, It's got two years to complete the transition and negotiation process. So it's official, which is... It's legit. uh, 
daunting and exciting for people. Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Prime Minister Theresa May has officially triggered Article 50 of the European Union. Um, so what Article 50 is, is a set of rules for any nation that wishes to leave the EU. Um, uh, so states that uh, wish to separate from the EU um, and it has two years to figure it out. So Britain is the first major economy to make an exit. So it's slightly unprecedented and it makes everything fall into a, into the great unknown. Um, yeah. There's so many things like to discuss and like what to say, you know, what will this mean? You know, how many like laws they had to make were ridiculous, you know, things mm. like that. It's yeah, interesting. And also through the, I had an interview with, um, a university uh, lecturer in London, University of London lecturer. And, you know, she raised some really interesting points about, um, Mm. you know, like the German councillor Angela Merkel, like putting talks on hold and, you know, everything's sort of waiting to see what is actually happening. So um, if if the UK lose access to the EU market, that means that trade negotiations could possibly default to the rules of the World Trade Organization, which is not only unprecedented, but the WTO rules are much tougher than um, the EU rules. So as, there's a lot to wade through. But um, I did speak with a University of London visiting lecturer, Zahira Jaysa, and we spoke about a range of topics regarding Brexit. But what I think is really interesting is the way Zahira explained what Brexit means for young people through her own experience and it really put into context the range of effects that could change the way people are educated, how they find a job and, you know, even simply expanding their horizons in a multicultural society. So we're going to uh, take you to that interview now. So I just wanted to start with when you're talking about, um, you know, the feeling on the ground. I think this question sort of ties into that. When um, I ask how, how Brexit will and the Prime Minister will deal with the Scottish hostility um, and people who are against Brexit being put together, even though that they voted to stay in the Scottish referendum that happened a few years ago. So I just wanted to know how you think that, that they will deal with that sort of tension. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so first of all, if you look at the historical evolution of the relationship between England and Scotland, you can always see that there has been some amount of tension and, you know, huge independence movements in in Scotland all the time. The point here is that this is effectively tapping into all those voices, historical voices, which have been, you know, a still fact in the DNA of of Scotland. And so the other point is that in Scotland, the uh, um, current party, the SNP, is, is more or less than the Tories, and this is also playing on that political tension. May needs a united United Kingdom to have Brexit, but if you look at how the referendum worked out, Scotland had a, a greater majority of people voting to stay. And so they're u- really using this to say, our people do not want to leave, they want to stay. So this is going against the will of our people. Therefore, we need to reconsider whether we want to stay with, the, uh, um, with England or we want to become members of the uh, European Union. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, they really um, they are basically voted yesterday to um, go with a for independent referendum uh, in 2019 or 2020. Mm-hmm which is exactly when um, um, 
the negotiations with the EU should end and that Britain, and Britain should leave the European Union. So by doing that, they're effectively putting Miss May at, um, at ransom. They're saying, look, if you don't do something that, you know, pleases Scotland or if your negotiation with the EU to not go in a direction that is in line with the people of Scotland, then we have this weapon, which we will use. And of course, it would be so much easier than to have a people tilting towards an independence and not if they, the negotiation had not gone in a way that is in line with Scottish people will. Yeah. So do you think that the, the time frame of two years is enough to sort of, you know, deal with all of these internal conflicts as well as developing a whole new system, basically? The, the fact is that from, for most of us, from most of the um, people, even people that are very informed about it, this um, negotiation is a bureaucratic black box. So we don't know exactly what's behind it. Um, there are a lot of reports that speak about the fact that two years are absolutely not enough. And we have already seen uh, Merkel yesterday coming up on, the, there were some security talks running in parallel to the EU leaving, say we cannot do any talks with Britain unless we have completely first disengaged from the relationship that we've been having for these 44 years. So we have to undo what has been done, and then we have to rebuild again. So if you go down that very meticulous route, I don't think the two years can be enough, because the two years will be just enough to undo. And then um, there, there seems to be voices in the European Union that say, we do not want to negotiate in parallel of uh, new rules, in parallel of uh, the disengagement, the, the undoing of our relationships. The UK employment laws are based on the European European Act. So how, how then do you go? So in, in UK, there is a big debate, what's going to happen to our employment laws? So, you know, and this is just one little bit, just employment laws. I guess you think about it, it's about agriculture, about economy, about energy, about employment, about trade, about everything. So is two years enough? Uh, the prevailing, uh, the prevailing uh, opinion is that two years is a very short time. So, I mean, I think there's been a lot of sort of a negative vibe, obviously apprehensive, but it's not necessarily been a celebrated idea of Brexit. But do you see any pros in um, what could come of it? I think that Brexit is the response to a unhappiness on the ground of certain parts of the population that have not been listened to. And so I think that now these voices are coming up. And when trapped voices come up in a society, it's always positive because it's, it's empowerment, empowerment of people. Part of the reason why these voices, these voices are at what we call the working classes, the white working classes in Britain. Okay, and these working classes have been deprived for many years of their role in society, which is to to work, to contribute to society by work. You know, we say the work nobilitates man, actually does. So when people are without work, because all the manufacturing has moved out of the country, all the mines have been closed. So we're talking about years and years and years of getting these people disempowered effectively without an alternative. And what they see is the global um, elite, uh, of which, by the way, I think I'm part of, because I'm, in, I'm a European citizen, I'm in this country, I teach at university, I was in banking before, I'm an educated person, so I'm taking these spaces and they, see, they feel disempowered and they feel these people coming in 
more or less educated that are taking these jobs. I think that their voice, therefore, has not been heard. So when they saw this Brexit opportunity, they jumped on it. And if we want to be heard, this is our voice. The elites and other people are governing us. We need to take our national pride in our hands. And this is very much what plays in the in the hand of, of this new uh, politics that we are seeing, which is not any more nationalistic politics, but is local versus global. I was just going to say, it certainly seems like that sort of trend like we see with Marine Le Pen and Donald Trump and then Brexit. And then even here in Australia, we have a a populist party that really plays on the um, white middle class idea. Um, So, yeah, it just seems like that sort of ever-grasping effect. Yeah, so listening to this voice is important, okay? Did you have to lead to Brexit? Uh, You know, I am heartbroken. A lot of people are heartbroken. You know, I, um, I hear the voices of a lot of European people. You know, I don't know, I don't think I know anyone that votes for Lee to say it's like, the ground is very divided. However, I do understand why some people would want to vote for Lee. And we need to find a way at political level to address the needs of these people. So I also wanted to ask about how the new Britain um, will be a global player in sort of international efforts as an ally um, and being a part of the UN and many of the uh, human rights organisations yeah. around the world. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So I don't think there are questions about some things. For example, NATO is is NATO. It's questioned in other ways by other people, but you know that there are that the UN is the UN and Britain has got a voice there. So I think that it mostly we're talking about trade effectively. And uh, in terms of trade, I am not a trade expert, <laughs> but I read stuff. I read stuff and I develop opinion. Britain from the past has this uh, identity of been a global player through the Commonwealth, and you know this extremely well, but also through ties to other parts of the world, like uh, US, uh, for the UK, for the US, which and have stronger ties than um, than other European countries have. However, when we speak about trade, we have to be very careful because trade agreements are very complex things. We've seen it with the TPI in, in the US, we've seen it with the agreement with Canada, and the European Union, you know, it takes five to ten years to, to take to, to take one of these massive trade agreements and put them in place. So whilst Britain might feel that part of the, the identity of the country and the DNA of the political class is that to have ties, very strong ties, much stronger than other countries to some key parts of the world, the other question that we have is, will they be able to materialize these ties into trade agreements? And frankly, it's the wrong time to do that because there is a little bit of protectionism going on down around everywhere. I know Trump says he's not protectionist, but he is. You know, he wants to. He doesn't want to necessarily build his economy on on, on trade with others. He wants to repatriate manufacturing, repatriate consumption, repatriate everything. So, you know, who are the people that then Britain can go to? So what we have seen, a trend that has started a few years ago, which is continues now, which is like some very wealthy Middle Eastern countries, for example, investing in the in Britain. And so Barclays Bank was saved by the deal with the Qatari government and a few years ago during the crisis. And now the Qatari government is also uh, investing. There is a huge presence of uh, Middle Eastern wealthy investors in London. That was the University of London 
visiting lecturer Zahara Jazia, speaking with represent executive producer, because we have fancy titles, Tash Chris. <laughs> I earned so, it. Um, we're going to go to another song, but we'll be returning to the interview shortly and looking at what Brexit means for the future for all Britons, but especially for young people who may have been disenfranchised within the Brexit referendum. So we will now go to a song by the Kooks with Bad Habit. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. That was Bad Habit by the Kooks. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. So I spoke with University of London visiting lecturer Sahira Jaisa, where we spoke about a range of topics regarding Brexit. But what I think is really interesting is the way Zahira... Um, yeah, I like, um, spoke about like, yeah, multicultural society and like different aspects of Brexit. Yeah, let's go into the interview now. Say that there had been a... Uh, like the white middle class people that hadn't been tapped into or sort of been sidelined. But the Brexit vote was really close. Um, and they did say that a majority voters who voted to leave were old. So does is it an actual a fear that young people will bear the brunt of um, the outcome of Brexit? So when I got out of university, when I was in my early 20s, I, I attended university in Italy. In, in Europe, we have this program, which is called the Erasmus program, which is a one-year exchange program that European countries' members participate to. So a lot of German kids go to France, a lot of Italian kids go to UK. So for one year, you attend university in another member state. Okay, this is how me and my husband met. So our family is built on the European Union identity. I then looked at jobs um, in multinational companies. I was hired by JP Morgan, the investment bank. Why was I hired by JP Morgan? With a view to move me to London, because the euro was coming to, um, it was at the end of the uh, 90s, the euro was becoming uh, currency, the new currency for the EU, and all the government bond trading was being moved to London. So all the traders were being moved to London, so investment banks were recruiting support uh, personnel for the traders who were mother speakers of the language. So I ended up working, for example, with the Italian government bond traders, where French people, very young people, moved to London to work with the French government bond traders and so on and so forth. Not only my relationship was built on European Union, but also my first job in an investment bank happened because of from the opportunities created from the European Union, from the currency, from the common currency, the euro. And so uh, if you ask me whether young people will, in Britain will have less uh, or different uh, opportunities than the one that I had, if Britain moves out of the European Union, I will tell you yes, of course, unless they negotiate situations in which there will still be you know, exchange with European nations or they open, you know, open doors to, to workers from other European nations. Exchange in this case for me was vital, but also I met I meet so many British people every day to tell me it's great to be in a multicultural situation. It's great to have different cultures around. It's great to participate. That was University of London visiting lecturer Zahira Jaisa um, ending that interview about Brexit and what it means going forward. Uh, let us know what you think of Britain's decision to leave the EU. 
Is it an exciting precedent or frightening? Does it matter? Let us know by tweeting to us at SinRepresent or let us know on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent, where we also have some polls, our emoji polls. So check those out. Yeah. Hey, Tash. Yeah. What time is it? Let me just check my watch. It's pop chat time. Pop chat. Uh, I April fooled you. No. Really? It is. So it's not pop chat? It's, no, it is. Oh. I was just, yeah. I was just trying to make funny jokes. So, Maria. <laughs> you know, like, April Fool's stuff today is just pretty bad. Uh, what's your pop chat? Well, my pop chat is a Huffington Post article, mm-hmm. so it's probably not that great. But it was a survey. Well, that was a bit, like, defamation, like. Session. Yeah, um, everyone. Huntington Post is okay, um, but you know it's like could be considered like fake news. I don't know. Anyway, anyway getting back to the topic, um, they said that most Americans wouldn't sleep with Donald Trump for one million dollars. It's the poll revealed that fifty three point one percent of women wouldn't have sex with Donald Trump for a million dollars, according to the survey. Um, but 55% of men um, wouldn't um, have sex with Donald Trump either. So more women want to have like sex with him if he could, they got a million dollars than men. That's so a great just a, poll. Yeah. What do you think of that? Someone posed the question. I mean, <laughs> it's just like a very weird like thing for the Huffington Post to like conduct that study. I think like if you really wanted to look at it, it says a lot. Yeah, it's a bit weird. It's like, yeah. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting that they even had that as like an article. Yeah. So that's why I put it there. Well, that's always a nice political coverage. Just weird, interesting fact. (laughs) Well, my pub chat uh, is about journalist um, Ted Copel, who was on Sean Hannity, uh, uh, his show. And it was a really great display of uh, journalistic integrity. Mm. Um, <laughs> so Fox News, uh, so Ted Copel told Sean Hannity uh, of Fox News that he's bad for America. And I just thought, I, I, again, I always pick things that are, you really need to like watch. I love it how you always go to the America for these things. I guess I do you too. Just but to yeah. <laughs> um, you really just need to watch like this video it. because it's just like, it's, it's just, like, the perfect thing, it's the way Ted Copel is yeah. really, like, calm about and, – and just, I don't know, like, just being really honest. And Sean Hannity is just kind of flustered in a way. But, you know, Ted Copel is a veteran journalist, um, so he's got a lot of uh, great background. And great he's, views. <laughs> he said, uh, you have attracted – to Sean, Han- Sean Hannity, he said, you have tr- attracted people – who were determined that ideology is more important than facts. And then Hannity called um, the circulating clip that obviously amounted after this episode, he called that fake news saying it was edited, but which is besides the point. Um, the key point is, regardless whether it's Fox News, or the New York Times or ABC, ideology isn't fact. Mm. <laughs> uh, fact is fact. And whoever in the industry works against that is wrong for yeah. any country. Yeah. But I thought... That it was great to have someone just say it, yeah. Especially to Fox News, which is not always that 
great. Yeah. But we want to know what your are both rooting I for know. this. <laughs> we're just like, I don't know, we're just we like, don't really side mean note, to be so mean. not meaning to. We want to yeah. know what your pop chat is. So let us know because we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Send us a tweet at SinRepresent or leave your pop chat on our Facebook page, Facebook. Maybe we can like feature it on one of the episodes if it's really amazing. Maybe. <laughs> I'm just trying to do audience participation and such, yeah. So yeah. our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash sin represent. That is all we have time for. That is another episode of Represent, the hour of politics. Thank you very much to our guests, Rebecca Sharkey and Zahira Jasa. Join us next week, same time on Sin Nation. Nation. Check nation, us out nation, on nation. Instagram by searching for SYN Represent or find us on Facebook facebook.com forward slash sin represent I'm Tash I'm Maria and you're representing represent 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 on Sin Nation <laughs>